1: North Korea is threatening to call off its summit with President Trump. Iran is wondering about its future as the uh, potential nuclear deal unravels. Here to talk about what the implications of all this is Eli Lake, a columnist with Bloomberg Opinion based in Washington, D.C. Eli, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. I want to start with a column that you wrote yesterday that I thought was really compelling. And uh, the headline is Trump's Cave to China's ZTE – hurts his Iran strategy. Can you please explain why?
2: Sure, uh, and thanks so much for having me. Um, the issue is that you had a decision and a, and, a, and a fairly standard process for penalizing ZTE after it had violated American export control sanctions by selling among other, to, to countries uh, U.S. technology, and among them were Iran. But more importantly, after the settlement, um, it was, you know, determined that, ZTE had violated its terms by rewarding the employees who are responsible for that violation. Um, So as a result, the Commerce Department ruled that U.S. companies could no longer sell equipment to ZTE, which is a fairly tough penalty, but it's coming at the end of a process. What Trump did over the weekend was instruct the Commerce Department to look into basically uh, reversing that decision or, um, you know, staving off those penalties. And the reason that that's important is that in the context of this, it has been reported and he sort of said that this is in the context of my trade negotiations with China, um, which are usually separated from national security related sanctions like this. And so the question then becomes, you know, the Europeans under um, Trump's decision last week to get out of the Iran deal would face secondary sanctions if they continued business with Iran's economy for the most part. And then The whole point is that you have to choose between doing business with America or Iran. Um, If the Europeans wanted to play hardball, they could take a a page from the Chinese playbook and threaten tariffs of their own against American exports in the hopes of basically removing them uh, in exchange for leniency on the Iran sanctions, which is the opposite of the intended effect of the Iran policy, which is to isolate the Iranian economy at this point. So that's why I think that um, it's dangerous because he's essentially kind of crossing these streams, and uh, since every you know, and, and the Europeans can sort of look at this and say, all right, well maybe if we play hardball, um, we will have a chance to um, get out of it as well.
0: Eli, uh, is it possible that I could just play devil's advocate and say that what you perceive as inconsistency is merely trade negotiations and that as a result of this, the president is in some way trying to uh, balance the interests of companies that sell to ZTE at the same time, reward the Chinese for perhaps their efforts on behalf of the United States, when it comes to North Korea nuclear policy?
2: Well, I think certainly there's, there's probably North Korea is lurking in the background, and the Chinese have been somewhat cooperative in uh, at least trying to get Kim Jong-un to the table. Um, but the downside of that is that the power of American sanctions is not just the fact that we have the world's reserve currency and the largest economy. It's also the fact that it's understood that, you know, there are procedures, there are rules that you have to follow, and if you violate them, eventually you will be penalized. Now, there is a parallel here. In the mid-1990s, the first Iran sanctions were uh, introduced by Congress and signed into law, but there was largely an exemption for European uh, companies, um, in some part because it was worked out, but also because there was no real enforcement of some of the banking sanctions until the 2000s, and once you started seeing cases against major uh, European banks, um, then at that point, um, you you the, the sanctions really did have more of an effect, and by and it sort of culminated in 2010, 2011. When Congress, you know, sort of forced Obama to impose what are known as the crippling sanctions on Iran's oil sector, and those have been credited with bringing the Iranians at least to negotiations. So the point here is that when you undermine something like this, particularly after ZTE had violated its settlement with the U.S. government, that's the key point here. Then it's almost saying that you know there is that everything is always negotiable. It's certainly within Trump's constitutional authorities to do whatever he wants in this realm, the president, the chief executive in our, in our system has a lot of power. But I think it sends a really bad message and creates a kind of moral hazard down the road, and it weakens the efficacy of these kinds of national security sanctions at a moment when the U.S. is relying on stuff like this more and more with, you know, kind of rogue states, whether it's Venezuela, whether it's Iran, uh, Sudan, et cetera.
0: Well, is there, I may just ask, I mean, is there is there any uh, historical pre- uh, precedent for a U.S. president uh, basically uh, creating these kind of ad hoc uh, situations and deals in which basically it is uh, at the discretion of the president to tell everybody yes and uh, see what happens? I mean, I, I think you know, historically, you've um, not to conflate the two necessarily, but you know, yeah. there's a lot of history about President Roosevelt during the the, the Second World War making these kinds of uh, agreements uh, in, in in which they were contradictory on the surface.
2: Sure, in a time of war, I mean, it's hard to say because in Roosevelt's day, we really didn't have the kind of sanctions regime and approach that we do now. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, the president can kind of make deals like this but deals to what end? And the point is, is that if he really wants to try to um, pressure the Iranians, the strategy, as best as I can tell, and what the administration has said is to yeah. hit them with crippling sanctions yet again, which would mean that you would you would wind down European investments in Iran, which, by right. the way, we're not going far, that far anyway for a lot of other reasons. But if that's what you wanted to do uh, in order to get better terms on a nuclear agreement,
3: right. then...
2: You know, you should make it very clear that we mean what we say when we penalize companies for violating our export controls, lying to our investigators. And on on top of all of this, I should add that in the case of VTE and another Chinese telecom, Huawei, U.S. intelligence community for years has been saying that these are. Um, that the equipment that is sold by these companies have a backdoor for Chinese intelligence to basically eavesdrop on uh, and have a kind of, you know, NSA-like capability in countries where they are part of the, um, you know, wireless infrastructure. So that's another factor in all of this as well. But, you know, I'm just saying that if, it, it, it's important that the message is sent, and, you know, it doesn't matter, friend or foe, when you, when you get on the wrong side of us, on these sorts of things, particularly after we try to, you know, make it possible for you to continue to do business, you know, there are going to be consequences and those consequences are final.
0: I want to thank you very much, uh, Eli Lake. He is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. You can follow Eli on Twitter at Eli Lake and uh, interesting uh, columns, uh, the Trump's cave to China's ZTE hurts his Iran strategy, yeah. as well as the West should beware of the Korean peace trap.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a, it's such an interesting time and it's so difficult to parse out posturing versus policy versus consistency versus, uh, you know, actual threat. And this seems to be what's facing the markets that are incredibly blasé today about all of these risks.
0: Indeed. I want to thank you very much. Uh, Eli Lake, once again, our Bloomberg Opinion columnist. When President Donald Trump uh, presented his uh, drug uh, pricing uh, proposal uh, at the White House press conference uh, last week, uh, he spoke about uh, competition between pharmaceutical companies bringing generic uh, drugs to consumers more quickly and also uh, trying to reduce the discrepancy between drug prices in the United States and those of our trading partners. Here to tell us more about the proposal and about the state of healthcare in the United States is Jeff Smedrud. He is the co-founder of HealthCare.com and also the founder and the chief executive of PivotHealth.com. Jeff, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. You know, one of the things I wanted to sort of just maybe let you offer people is a little bit of your background, because you're an expert in the world of health insurance. You understand things like risk pools, fixed indemnity plans. Give people a little background uh, so that they understand where you're coming from.
3: Well, I've been in the uh, health insurance business and the consumer-directed business uh, most of my life, most of my career. Actually, my father was uh, in that business as well, so I, I understand what uh, consumers are think about how they uh, react to uh, what's important to them and, and some of the issues that they have to deal with. And the most important thing to remember is they have a budget. They have to live within that budget. And we have now a healthcare system that is in increasingly uh, straining those budgets. And that leads to some very difficult choices.
1: Well, so given your background with the health insurance uh, business, can you give us a sense, when you were listening to President Trump uh, talk about his health care blueprint uh, to reduce pharmaceutical prices, what stood out to you the most as potentially the most transformative or most effective?
3: Well, I, I, th- I think the most transformative aspect of it is, uh, is finally addressing that big pharma needs to make some changes. And I think part of the process of doing that is to really push very hard for transparency, really push very hard for something consumers can find and see and search for that helps them uh, understand what their choices are and what the efficacy of of certain types of uh, drugs uh, will be.
0: Let's, I wanna get your thoughts on something called a risk pool, if, if you don't mind. What is a risk pool and how do people Uh, What do people really need to know about how they operate?
3: Well, risk pools uh, allow uh, insurance companies or other entities to pool the very sickest and most expensive claims into a larger and larger pool. There's been a lot of debate uh, in the last uh, year about what is the role of government in doing that, what is the role of providers in doing that. But it's difficult for any one insurance company to deal with Claims that are ten million, fifteen million dollars, and there needs to be some mechanism to to pool all of that so that the rest of us uh, can have a more affordable insurance option.
1: You know, Jeff, I, I guess um, transparency is is good and is important, and you've been trying to do that with your uh, with your site, which tries to offer people a way of comparing healthcare plans. I just wanna push back a little bit because a lot of people in the market were saying that the healthcare plan that President Trump outlined uh, was pretty much toothless. And the pharmaceutical company shares rallied in the wake of this, not only that, but also the pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs. Um, I'm struck by my colleague, Max Neeson's column that he put out, Bloomberg opinion writer saying, look, nothing's gonna change until people are willing to say uh, that the government won't cover certain medications that are just too expensive Uh, and use that as a bargaining tool. What's your take on this? What will it take to actually change this?
3: I I, I think consumers have to be empowered. Consumers need to take more action. Consumers need to be more vocal. uh, And there needs to be more transparency. Uh, But if consumers push back and- uh, But
1: how do they push back if a lot of this is covered by insurance companies?
3: Well, they can push back by understanding what lower cost options might exist. Uh, they can push back because increasingly first $10,000 of expenses are not being covered by the insurance company. It's being covered by them. So there, there's a lot of incentives to push back and to look at different alternatives.
0: Do you believe that we're going to end up with a single payer system?
3: No, I, I, I don't think we will end up there. I, I think where we need to go is to, in a system that rewards consumers uh, for Taking steps to improve their health rewards consumers for being smart about shopping about healthcare and recognizes uh, that they have some responsibility to bear in that. And if they're rewarded economically for that, I I think healthcare begins to change in a way for the better.
1: You know, I'm curious, given the fact that you're really focused on transparency, um, how much divergence is there between healthcare plans and the value they provide? Because that is really at the heart of what your site does, correct?
3: There there can be significant amount of uh, divergence. If you look at all of the options and alternatives, if you are only looking at plans available as a result of the Affordable Care Act, there are basically standardization. But if you look at plans that are not part of uh, the Affordable Care Act, non-Obamacare plans, short-term medical plans, fixed indemnity plans. There are a lot of ways that consumers can tailor plans to meet their needs and you're seeing more of that.
1: Do you think that Obamacare was a bad thing? I mean, are you glad to see the rollback of aspects of it?
3: I'm not happy to see that it uh, didn't work. I would have liked to have seen it work better than it did. But one of the things that we've learned from this is that one size doesn't fit all, that we have to allow consumers to tailor plans. We have to recognize that they have budgets. And the other change that's happening, uh, we're increasingly a gig economy. We have 53 million Americans that are working at a variety of temporary jobs. So the, the notion of gig insurance is kind of coming along with that. The, the, the idea of health insurance was built for a workforce that largely doesn't exist anymore. Uh, people had permanent jobs now everything is temporary, everything is moving, everything is gig, and you're going to have to see health insurance adapt to that. Would a fixed indemnity uh,
0: type of uh, offering be a, a useful uh, adjunct or addition to the health well, insurance? I, it,
3: if fixed indemnity plans can be useful, the, they aren't a fit for everybody, but the idea of knowing exactly how much you're going to be reimbursed for a certain type of procedure, a fixed amount, Allows a consumer to shop, allows them to use different online services that says this is what an MRI costs, this is what a colonoscopy costs, um, this is what x-rays cost, and find the provider and and the resource that provides it within that budget frame. And there is a lot of variance in prices.
1: Jeff Smedrud, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Really interesting to hear your thoughts. Jeff Smedrud is co-founder of healthcare.com, also the founder and chief executive at Pivot Health. Such an important issue, Pam. I was struck by a story that I read in Bloomberg uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about how doctors themselves are sometimes going without insurance because it's so expensive, Uh, not to mention families and uh, many others, uh, exactly as Jeff was talking about, who are part of the gig economy and cannot afford the thousands of dollars per month that it requires to cover a family. Let's talk about something kind of rare in the retail sector, a winner. I'm talking about Macy's shares up uh, almost 10 percent after reporting uh, same store sales in the first quarter. They were up 3.9 percent over a year earlier, blowing past uh, analysts' expectations. Sarah Halzak joins us now. She's a Bloomberg Opinion retail columnist. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. What happened that was so right for Macy's in this past quarter?
4: It was a combination of things. So for one, they just benefited from a good macro backdrop, right? Um, There's healthy consumer spending. And also one thing they called out in their earnings call today was that international tourist spending was really strong. It was up 10% for them over uh, the same quarter a year earlier. So uh, those are big picture factors that help. And then some of it just really did come down to better execution by Macy's. Uh, One thing I think was particularly noteworthy was that their average unit retail was up 5%, which means they did a better job of selling stuff at full price instead of having to yeah, with a gazillion coupons.
0: Now, Sarah. Um, also, Macy's has uh, acquired uh, something called Story. They've also got backstage shops, as well as the expansion of the uh, Blue Mercury uh, unit. Can you talk a little bit about how Macy's is perhaps doing things organically that are benefiting the bottom line?
4: Yeah, I think that Backstage is particularly interesting. They're essentially creating an off-price store within the Macy's store. And um, the idea is that the value proposition is most of the off-pricers, TJ Maxx, Marshalls, have been doing really well, but they're not located within malls, right? They're usually in strip centers. And the idea is to bring that uh, concept to the mall. And they seem to be having some success with that. Uh, The stores that have the Backstage area are really seeing a lift in sales. And I think Blue Mercury is a really interesting opportunity for them, too. Uh, What we've seen, for years now is the beauty business is just booming here we have women are you know scrimping on clothes shopping at fast fashion players like uh, H&M Rosara but they're willing to pay $85 for face cream why I don't know Uh, I do do too Um, and it's a dynamic we've seen for a long time um, and blue mercury uh, is a really good way
1: to uh, lean into that so Sarah you know you were saying that a big aspect of this is a better back backdrop you've got people spending more on stuff And given that, I'm surprised that retailers more broadly today aren't doing better. I'm looking at the S&P 500 Retailing Industry Index, and it's up half a percentage point, which is surprisingly small, uh, given the positive kind of read through on this report.
4: Yeah, and I think maybe what that reflects is that uh, the retail industry has really been proving itself to sort into winners and losers, uh, that these benefits are not necessarily, the benefits of a better consumer environment are not necessarily being shared by everyone. And look, we, we saw that in the holiday season too. There were some really strong performers. Uh, Macy's had a good holiday. JCPenney had a good holiday. And then there were others like Bonton that were basically crushed by the holiday season and forced into bankruptcy. So I think uh, there's a knowledge out there that uh, the, the rising tide might not lift all boats. It might only lift the boats that are executing well.
0: Sarah, is there still a conversation, do you believe, that's going on about what to do with that real estate, the, uh, the Herald Square store estimated, I believe, by Starboard Value at one point to be worth about $4
4: billion? Yep, it definitely seems we didn't get any updates from them on real estate today, but we know it is still an ongoing project for them to spin off uh, some of their crown jewels uh, to free up cash to either pay down debt or support their e-commerce transformation. And we know they're still interested in doing these kinds of deals. The most recent one uh, was selling seven floors of their State Street store in Chicago. I think they estimate they're going to get about $30 million in proceeds from that. Um, and so we have every reason to believe they're continuing to look at opportunities for Herald Square and other of their uh, really flat
1: So, Sarah, it's uh, heating up with respect to retail earnings season. The rest of it might be over, but next week we're going to get a whole slew of earnings reports. Which one should we most watch for uh, sort of uh, using as a bellwether of the retail industry?
4: I think Walmart is going to be really important tomorrow. Uh, for one, I think that's a good place where we can see. You know, we've seen fuel prices creeping up in recent months, and I think uh, Walmart and Target both will provide good gauges of uh, whether or not that matters as people are buying their consumer staples. Um, and also, I think all eyes are going to be on Walmart tomorrow uh, because of their e-commerce growth. They clearly had this Flipkart acquisition um, a couple of weeks ago that investors got a little skittish about, and their e-commerce growth wasn't so good in the fourth quarter. Um, and I think tomorrow. Tomorrow will be uh, a good indication of how well they're going to be able to take it to Amazon in the future and how well any traditional retailer is going to be able to take it to Amazon in the future.
0: I want to thank you for joining us. Sarah Halzek is a Bloomberg Opinion retail columnist uh, giving us her views on Macy's. And the shares of uh, Macy's are higher right now by nearly 9.5%. He's an expert in the world of the Jedi. James Bach is our government analyst for federal contracts for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us from our 991 studios in Washington. James Bach, thanks very much for being here. All right. Tell people, what is Jedi when it comes to the Department of Defense and the companies that may actually be involved in the Jedi program?
5: Yeah, so as part of um, efforts by the Department of Defense to find a host for its uh, enterprise-wide cloud infrastructure and platform, um, they're starting to, it it should be sometime this week, they're going to be looking at bids um, for this hosting. So we could be seeing, you know, obviously the big names like Amazon, Microsoft, um, and then IBM, Google, Oracle. All these companies are probably going to come forward with bids to try to be the DoD's, um, you know, go-to cloud hoster for their enterprise-wide infrastructure and platform
0: i thought you were going to save me when i said jedi and you were going to mention that it stands for joint enterprise defense infrastructure i apologize the, no no the do you well you're we're in calling washington it jedi. you, you yeah. live you live in the world of acronyms right i mean the dod yes. loves acronyms right yes absolutely okay
1: well, you know, James, I want to talk a little bit about the significance of this. Before we get into the political implications and the back and forth with President Trump and Amazon's Jeff Bezos, I just want to get a sense. This is a $10 billion contract. You know, how big of a deal is this? I mean, does it lead to additional contracts? And uh, could it make or break a business, in other words?
5: Yeah. So if we're looking at the, maybe the financial implications, if we just look at, say, $10 billion over 10 years, which are what some of the estimates are, we're looking at, at most, let's say, a billion a year. Um, that's not you know, financially significant necessarily for any of these companies that are considering bids. Um, But what it does do um, for any company that wins this, it kind of gives you the endorsement of the Department of Defense, who has very rigorous uh, security requirements um, as part of their cloud hosting. So that kind of says a lot about how your cloud is doing in the market, and that obviously will reverberate through private sector and public sector.
1: That's an excellent point. In other words, basically saying, look, if we're secure enough for the Pentagon, we can be secure enough for your business. Um, So let's talk about Amazon. It was the front runner for this contract, and then Jeff Bezos meet President Trump. Please explain.
5: Yeah, so uh, when I look at the political implications of this, obviously you have to consider this sort of animosity that Trump has toward Amazon and um, Jeff Bezos. Um, I don't think that Trump's, uh, you know, Trump, there's a big, you know, government bureaucracy and acquisition process that governs how this contract gets awarded. And it transcends anything um, as far as Trump's um, views of Amazon or Jeff Bezos. What I think is more of a, um, more, what's, what's kind of making this more of Amazon not being the front runner is just the, the, the simple fact that they're not the only player in the market anymore. It's not the same as 2013 when the CIA awarded Amazon the contract. Uh, for their cloud hosting. Um, And I think that's probably the biggest threat to Amazon more than say, you know, Trump versus uh, Amazon. Why isn't IBM or Google or Oracle front running? Um, Well, it's a matter of where they kind of sit in the market. You have Amazon as the market leader, below that you have uh, Microsoft, and then there's kind of those three companies. Um, IBM has this, uh, has some strengths in that they're in this old school world of traditional data center IT, which is something that would be an asset because the Department of Defense is probably going to move to the cloud in kind of a slower, more deliberate way, given all their national security workloads. Um, But they simply just don't have the scale um, or maybe the capabilities that Microsoft does. Microsoft is much stronger on that side. Then you talk about Oracle. They're kind of in the same boat, just smaller than IBM, uh, and then Google, which has definitely, you know, a large, compelling offering around infrastructure, um, they have this issue with um, they're not really in that uh, old school world of IT. They're more on the uh, you know, cloud native companies like Snapchat and Spotify, not really, really, you know, maybe philosophically aligned with how the Department of Defense would look to do their um, cloud migration.
1: So um, one thing that uh, strikes me about Amazon.com, it already has worked with the CIA. I'm just wondering, I mean, how much have we learned about the different sort of security levels of the different cloud providers? And I mean, is there any difference between them uh, that's material or is there something else that's kind of factoring into the bidding process?
5: The CIA is a good, I guess, um, example or past performance, which is always very important in government contracting. It does give the DOD something to look at as um, an example of what they might want to try to replicate. Um, if trying to get into kind of a discussion of who has the better security might be a little more difficult. Um, I think that capably, I mean, any of these companies are probably could capably host the uh, Microsoft, I mean, could hold host the cloud, whether that be Microsoft or IBM, it just really comes down to who is mostly aligned with how the DoD wants to do this migration.
0: James, other companies that may end up with contracts for consulting and the actual migration and application services related to this contract include, what, Booz Allen, uh, CACI, Kaki, General Dynamics, and so on?
5: Yeah, yeah. If you can just kind of go down the line of all those companies that are in this. Obviously, uh, this past week, there was an investor uh, day in New York with a new company called Prospecta, which is a spin-off and merger from, you know, HP's old government business, they're also probably going to be involved in trying to find how they can position for a, uh, you know, those cloud consulting contracts or help with migration or, you know, application rationalization services. There's a lot of work that will come as a follow-on to this, as well as potential further contracts that maybe agencies will be prompted to... Um, you know, bigger cloud migration initiatives that could come out of this after you know seeing the DOD do it. So there's a lot of follow on work that could come in the services area outside of just the uh, pure commercial cloud hosting.
1: James Bach, thank you so much for being thank with you. us and for tracking this. James Bach is a government analyst covering and focusing on federal contracts for Bloomberg Intelligence coming to us from our Bloomberg 991 studios in Washington, DC. Really interesting and important to put this into perspective. It's a $10 billion Pentagon cloud contract probably a pittance over 10 years for a lot of these massive tech companies. I know it's weird to call $10 billion a pittance. Um, and yet the tentacles of this endorsement, to have the Pentagon endorse your cloud computing services is uh, quite powerful. And there are a lot of other government services that also could come along with that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg p Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer.